I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at, at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was booted! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. Noel is on an adventure, but... Wait, who are you? That's right, they call me Ben. We are joined with our super producer, Paul, Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you. You are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. This is a weird one, Matt. This is an episode that uh, a lot of our fellow listeners had asked us to cover in years past... Yes, it's uh, it's a callback. It's a callback. It really is. And we did, uh, we we did an episode related to this topic way back in what 2016. Mm-hmm. So looking back, it's strange to recall that the 2016 presidential campaign happened three years ago. Yeah, it, it certainly doesn't seem as though that much time has passed, but 
In fact, it has. Oh, three-ish years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're not ballparking. quite there. Yeah, we're not quite to November yet, but still, hey, it's it's crazy that much time has passed. And, you know, elections, especially presidential elections in this country, they, they bring out the best and the worst of us, I think. <laughs> I think that's incredibly optimistic and I appreciate that. I needed to, to hear some good news today. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right, my friend. I agree with you. Way back in 2016, when we first did some episodes on elections, we figured that the most fact-based and the fairest way for us to sum up all the allegations and conspiratorial accusations that we had we had heard of was to do one episode for each of the political party front runners. So we did one episode on conspiracies about the Trump campaign and we did one episode on conspiracies about the Hillary Clinton campaign. Yes, and Bernie didn't even make it in there. Actually, that's not true. Bernie made an appearance in the Clinton episode. Oh, yeah, yeah, along with your, your pal Wasserman Schultz, right? Oh, well, everyone's pal, Wasserman Schultz. It was like this, uh, both of those episodes together were like this Avengers Infinity War team up of horrible people doing horrible things. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> and whether we like it or not, uh, we contributed to whatever it is that we are in right now, whatever this is. We, mm. we just gave a little bit uh, because everyone involved, like you said, was all there. Everybody was up to no good. And there really wasn't a great choice, it seemed, at least in my opinion. Yeah, because we had we had a situation wherein mass media was being leveraged so effectively. Mass media was around in other elections, but it hadn't quite reached the fever pitch that it reached in the 2016 presidential campaign. And like most presidential campaigns here in the States, the one in 2016 saw the rise and fall of multitudes of politicians as well as the sudden rise and, candidly, the disappearance of various scandals. You know what I mean? That's correct. Absolutely. So today's story starts with one of the famous controversies or should we say infamous controversies in that election. It's known as the Hillary Clinton email scandal or email controversy. The word choice there depends upon uh, which which side of the aisle you fall on for a lot of people. How much do you want to downplay this? <laughs> right, right. So for some people, this was a case study in out-of-control media grasping at straws, right? Yeah. And those were generally people who were supporters of the Clinton campaign. For others, generally opponents of that campaign, it was a case study in how the powerful can sweep their political dirt under the figurative rug. But, in reality, yeah. it was somewhere in the middle. Right, right, right. And and nowadays, people still use the phrase, but the emails. So first things first, what are we talking about here? Well, that, that uh, phrase, but the emails, it's kind of shorthand, really, and it's a bit of a joke. Uh, and it's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's pretty crazy. It goes back to this series of really security violations that were undertaken I don't know how you how you put that that they were they were violations that the Clinton campaign did while she was in office as secretary of state and uh it was it had to do with uh putting emails on a private server or or putting emails that should not be on a private server on a private server right that mm-hmm. and the in the 
big major scheme of things, that's what it is. And ultimately, you're talking about the classification of certain email and information within emails that maybe shouldn't have been on a private server. And I know that for many of us listening today, this is something that you you may feel that you heard ad nauseum three years ago. Uh, and you're thinking, well, why should, why should I listen to this? We have a plot twist coming up for you. This is not just an episode about emails. The uh, plot thickens pretty quickly. But to get there, we need to walk through the the email scandal, the email controversy. It is exactly as you described it, Matt, a series of security violations. Think of it as um, – you know what? Think of one server as a an old school filing cabinet, Right. And then another server right next to it, another old school filing cabinet. And in the server to your right, that's where all the classified stuff goes. What's up with North Korea? What, what are Iran and various other Middle Eastern powers uh, angry or cranky about today? That goes into this one file cabinet. And that file cabinet has a crazy amount of locks on it mm-hmm. and uh, biometric scanning in order mm-hmm. to get into it. it. It's intense stuff. And then you have the other file cabinet on your left. No locks. It's kind of a junk drawer. Yeah. There are, you know, there are like old recipes, maybe some Pinterest things in there. (laughs) But then one way or another, through accident or through intentional action, the stuff that's top secret or just secret ends up there with the recipes and the, uh, hey, what are you doing on Saturday? Let's go to (laughs) – What's a chain restaurant? Uh, oh, Charlie's. Oh, Paul's going to kill us if we don't shout Applebee's. out Applebee's. Applebee's. Sorry. Sorry, Paul. Applebee's. Jeez. <laughs> that was close. Here's another major distinction we have to make. Yes. The server on your right, the one that has all those locks on it with all the classified information, that one can be seen by the State Department, by a lot of other uh, intelligence agencies. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, uh, there's accountability on that one, right? To right. the government. The private one, that one, the one on your left, it's completely controlled by the Clinton campaign and people who are contracted to work with the Clinton campaign on that email server. Mm -hmm. That's a huge thing that we have to just remember. Absolutely. Great point. There is a chain of custody in theory for everything in that right-hand filing cabinet. This controversy is is a series of security violations, misfiled emails, deleted emails, and That's so another on. big thing, deleted uh, emails. Deleted emails, yeah. And this started before Clinton became the Democratic candidate in the 2016 campaign, but it continued during the campaign. This didn't really become a national story until March of 2015 when the New York Times ran a front-page article on the subject. The article said that the system, quote, may have violated federal requirements and was, quote, alarming, unquote, to current and former government archive officials. So that's what that's what the Clinton campaign was found doing. Clinton was found to have used her family's private server for official communications instead of official State Department email accounts. This happens to a lot of people on a much smaller scale. Let's say that you have multiple social media accounts. Let's say that um, like our good friend Mission Control, you have one account that's Paul something or other and then you have another account that is uh, Applebee's Facts. Yeah. (laughs) And and, uh, you forget to – you know, you forget to switch your profile over and so – your, it sounds more like a Reddit username. <laughs> it does. It sounds like a great Reddit username. And then, uh, you know, 
all of a sudden things that should be said by Paul are being said by Applebee's facts and, and vice versa. That's that's a much smaller level yeah. because Applebee's facts, and this is not a knock on Applebee's facts at all, usually doesn't deal with things like geopolitical tensions in the Middle East yet. Not yet. I mean those apps are coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, you know, quid quid pro quo things having to do with the classification of emails. Whenever, Don't worry about that. Whenever I hear quid pro quo, I cannot help but think of Silence of the Lambs. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. A little quid pro quo, Clarice? What's her name? Quid pro quo, Clarice. Clarice. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Did you know, completely off topic, Matt, uh, the renowned actor Anthony Hopkins, his character Hannibal Lecter, that's not a spoiler, is only actually on camera for like a ridiculously small amount of time, like 15 minutes or something all told. Yeah, and he won. Didn't he win? Oscars galore that year. Uh, we in the Monster of the Zodiac Killer. We actually mentioned that that year that that movie came out. Mm-hmm. They tailored the entire Oscar ceremony around his character, essentially in that movie. It's insane. Uh, the U.S. does glorify serial killers. Also, I found another uh, ancient serial killer. I think I, I'm building a pretty good argument. I'd like to pitch to you later. Well, I'll do it now. Uh, why don't we do an episode on serial killers before uh, the 1800s or ancient serial killers? Whoa. I have a treasure trove. Really? A lot that will be new to people, yeah. Documented serial killers? Proven, Proven. yeah. Okay. That sounds like a whole new podcast. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. We'll give it a go. So before we explore the lives of those ancient serial killers, let's continue exploring this strange story of emails. Right now, we've outlined the the gist, right? But let's walk through a little bit more of it. So shortly before she was sworn in as Secretary of State in 2009, Hillary Clinton had set up an email server at her home in New York. This was home to an email address, hdr22 at clintonemail.com. And this was for all of her email correspondence, work-related, personal stuff during her four years in office. She also set up email addresses on the server for her longtime aide, State Department Chief of Staff, uh, one Cheryl Mills as oh, well. Uh, Huma Abedin. Huma Abedin, yes, yeah. yes, was the longtime aide. She did not use – or even activate a state.gov email account, which which was a big deal. It would have been hosted on servers owned and managed by the U.S. government. The reason that's an important detail is not necessarily because people thought the Secretary of State was a criminal or doing criminal acts. It's more for operational security or OPSEC. Yeah. Because other other countries, no matter how friendly they are, would love to know what's going on in the U.S. when the doors to the halls of power are closed. Oh, of course. And if you're perhaps someone like uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton and you stand out that, you know, that much as a name, as a powerful person within the halls of that power, uh, your private email server is a major target for anyone and everyone who may be looking to find some information. Heck yeah. So so the FBI ends up getting involved uh, a little later on. And what they found was that over 100 emails containing some version of classified information were found on her private servers. There were 65 emails that were considered uh, secret, classified secret. 22 were classified top secret. Uh, And it doesn't get much more secret than that. Another uh, 2,000 
2,093 emails were not initially classified, but then they were retro, retroactively classified by uh, the State Department itself. Kind of like upon further consideration, this is sensitive information. And it's important to know that that is the State Department that is doing that. That will come into play a little later. And there's a side note. There are things above top secret like compartmentalized access, your eyes only. Yes. But but that as far as we know, these emails just went up to top secret, which is still a big deal. Yeah. That, that shouldn't you know, be sitting around on your – your Yahoo account or something. But you're absolutely right. So something is amiss here. It doesn't matter where you fall politically. Various critics, including Republican members of Congress, argued that using a private messaging system and server violated State Department protocols. And furthermore, they said, this violates federal laws and regulations. The FBI is on the case. As early as 2009, officials with the NARA, the National Archives and Records Administration, expressed concerns over these possible violations of the standard operating procedure of record keeping at the State Department. December of 2012, near the end of Clinton's tenure as Secretary of State, a nonprofit group with a pretty neat name, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, or CREW. Oh, yeah. They filed a Freedom of Information Act request to get the records of the uh, departing Secretary of State's emails. They received a response in May of 2013 that said no records responsive to your request were located. That's government ease for 404 yeah. search error. <laughs> Nothing found. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and then you um – you got to look at the uh, certain emails that were sent to that whole ClintonEmail.com address, which is terrible to read, by the way, because it looks like Clinton mail. Uh, it just doesn't look great. But they were discovered in March 2013 when a hacker who called himself or herself, whoever it was, Guccifer, and uh, they distributed these emails that were sent to Clinton from Sidney Blumenthal. And uh, this dude, Guccifer, obtained them by illegally accessing Blumenthal's email account. So – uh, this hacker essentially, Guccifer, broke into Sidney Blumenthal's email, found all of these private Clinton emails. And Guccifer is a portmanteau of Gucci and Lucifer. So is Guccifer. It Guccifer? It's Guccifer. I've always heard Guccifer. Yeah, yeah. I, I just – I like the wordplay. <laughs> uh, guy's a criminal though. In the summer of 2014, lawyers from the State Department noticed uh, several emails from Clinton's personal account while reviewing documents requested by the House Select Committee on Benghazi, which is a whole other bag of badgers. Oh, boy. And then as we said earlier – at 2015 New York Times piece comes out, it breaks the story that the Benghazi panel had discovered Clinton exclusively used her own private server rather than the government-issued one throughout her time as SOS Secretary of State and that furthermore her aides took no action to preserve emails that she sent or received from those personal accounts. The State Department and the Intelligence Community Inspector General discovered four emails that had classified information and this was out of this was a spot check it was yeah. out of a random sample of 40 and when they saw that they said okay four out of 40 that's one out of 10 we need to refer this to the FBI their counterintelligence office and so they alerted the authorities that this classified intel was kept on the Clinton server and by her lawyer 
on a thumb drive. Interesting. Then the New York Times runs a story on July 24th, 2015 with the headline, Criminal Inquiry Sought in Clinton's Use of Email. Yeah, and the lead sentence from that story was, two inspectors general have asked the the Justice Department to open a criminal investigation into whether Hillary Rodham Clinton mishandled sensitive government information on a private email account she used as Secretary of State, senior government officials said Thursday. So that's, again, that's the New York Times. You've got them citing senior government officials saying that Hillary Clinton mishandled sensitive information on her private email. That's really all you need to know. That's a big deal. Then, of course, you have all of these large U.S. organizations who, you know, they jump on and they correct, they correct the New York Times, stating that, quote, an important distinction is that the ICIG... (laughs) (laughs) The ICIG did not make a criminal referral. It was a security referral made for counterintelligence purposes. So to get back through that governmentese, what they are saying is that we were not – we were not giving an order to book him, Dano. We we were saying this could be leveraged by unfriendly foreign powers. Yes. And the Times made – Two other corrections, right? First, that Clinton was not the specific target of the referral and then that it was not criminal in nature. But the the funny thing is with redactions, corrections, things like that, even in large papers of note, they they legally correct the record but they do nothing for the court of public opinion. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. You remember the first thing, especially the first headline. Mm -hmm. If you see uh, Clinton email scandal – in a headline somewhere or Clinton email referral or just some other combination in that where you've got a person, a bad thing, and an object. Um, that's what you remember. And it doesn't matter if a week later, two days later, you, there's a correction on the original article. Even if they tweet out, correction, this was not what it was, nobody gives a crap. Yeah, typically. Typically. And that's not a ding on anyone's intelligence. That's just the nature of psychology for most people. Precisely. So how did this initial investigation, how did this all shake out? We'll tell you after a word from our sponsor. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene. I've lost on the business. I understand now. 
the wise man, the Marie is a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, we're back. So let's jump to July 5th of 2016. There's this gentleman named Comey, James Comey. He was the director of the FBI. You may remember this name. Uh, I haven't said that name in a long time. I used to say it a lot. Um, but he announced that the FBI completed its investigation and uh, he was going to, you know, they were going to talk to the State Department with a certain recommendation. And that recommendation was that no charges are appropriate in this case. Okay. What? That's great news for the Clinton campaign and all of the supporters. Uh, he went on to say that although there is evidence of potential violations of the statutes regarding the handling of classified information, our judgment is that no reasonable prosecutor would bring such a case. Now, in this uh, this initial messaging that's coming from the FBI from Comey, the director. Again, July 2016. Yeah, exactly. 
July, they just, it seems like, hey, this email thing happened. It's a little bit of carelessness, but you know what? We're okay. Nobody did anything on purpose to hurt anybody else. It was just, they used a private server, slap the hand, let's move on. Sloppy, but not sinister. There you go. Right. So. But that changed. The thing is, that changes. <laughs> uh, the There's another there's another investigation on October 28th, 2016. Comey tells Congress that in connection with an unrelated case, the FBI has learned of the existence of emails that appear pertinent to the investigation. Uh, we're going through a lot of context here. Yeah. So, but we'll, we'll get through it. It'll be worth it at the end. This unrelated case to which they referred was the FBI investigation of the famously and uh, hilariously tragically named Anthony Weiner. Oh, yes. From The Daily Show. Yes. Uh, famously from The Daily Fam- Show. <laughs> famously uh, from The Daily Show. Uh, this guy, uh, dis- despite, you know, his name might make you think he has a sense of humor, but he got busted sending sexually explicit text to a child, a 15-year-old girl. The FBI discovered emails from his estranged wife who was uh, – what was her name again? The aforementioned uh, Huma Abedin. Huma Abedin, the vice chair of the Clinton presidential campaign. And because of this, they considered that these emails might be relevant to the investigation. At the time, Comey said the FBI would take appropriate investigative steps designed to allow investigators to review these emails to determine whether they contain classified information as well as to assess their importance to the investigation. Now, anytime we talk about government procedure, I know it can feel increasingly like a snooze fest. There yeah. are acronyms and initialisms flying willy-nilly. Everybody is talking like someone from the DMV wrote their speech. Yeah, it's talking around things a lot of the time mm-hmm. or of the procedures and the procedural nature. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Well, and that's – there's a reason for that, right? Because you want to make sure you get every letter, every syllable perfect – um, just to jump in before we're going, this is such a good idea. Uh, we were joking as we were going through the Huma Abedin stuff with Anthony Weiner. Mm-hmm. Just let's just take a moment to say how disgusting that is that he was sending inappropriate pictures to a 15-year-old. Yeah. Really awful. We 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 are not making light of that. It kind of slid past us as we were joking through the other it's things. It's disgusting. Right? Yes. Okay. I think – okay, we can move on. <laughs> So, yeah, I I hope that was never a question for anybody. But, yes, just to be crystal clear, bold it, underline it, stamp that, gross. Perfect. Okay. So uh, on November 6th, 2016, mere days before the election, Comey sends a letter to Congress and he says, look, we worked around the clock and we're sticking with our guns from July. Sorry, everybody, this was careless, but we do not believe it was a crime. Literally days before the election, as you said. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, despite criticisms that this was a superbly timed October surprise, one of those last-minute things that can happen that can swing the needle toward one candidate or another, Comey claimed that both the investigation and its conclusions were apolitical. They had nothing to do with politics – we're the FBI. We have a job. We do our job. Their job is to try to get elected. Our job is counterintelligence and fighting crime. And we did it. No surprise, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't caught up with the news since, the Clinton campaign was unsuccessful. Donald Trump became the president of the United States and 
uh, people who opposed the Clinton campaign or thought there was something um, rotten in Washington were not persuaded by the FBI's two investigations. They said it was – they were like, it's a cover-up. It's rotten from – it's fat cats at the top all the way to fat cats giving reports in Congress. These cats are just obese. Yeah, too many and too fat. Too many and too fat, they said. Yes, that's a quote. <laughs> it seemed that despite – Despite the FBI's claims that there were there was nothing wonky about their timing, it seemed that whomever had managed to orchestrate this story and narrative of private versus government emails, who had managed to turn it into a chant and a rallying point uh, for oppositional media, had done this masterful job. Uh, Hillary Clinton herself cited this as one of the factors in losing the election. I would a thousand percent agree. That this was a huge factor. It's what everybody was talking about. Yeah. I mean, it couldn't have been the only factor. No. Okay. But it was still the thing that if you thought about Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. in, right around that time, like October, late October, early November it's 2016, it was Clinton email. It was the you, – you, you mean like it was the first keyword that popped yes. up in everybody's mental Google? Yeah. Even if you were a supporter or something, mm-hmm. I guarantee you that was happening. Even if it was like Clinton, oh gosh, the emails, whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> the calls for investigation into this matter did not cease. This association was prominent in people's minds even after the election and uh, furthermore – they they felt that justice had not been done or something was amiss. And these calls for investigation continued uh, even as the Trump administration floundered several times both on the domestic and international stage. The White House itself increasingly called for more investigation into the Clinton campaign's classification of emails. Uh, they went so far as to fire James Comey for this and some other – and fired him for some other reasons, which could be episodes all their own one day. Mm-hmm. Today, this subject remains a rallying call for some voters on the right. Uh, Foreign intelligence agencies who pretend to be voters are also very ardent about this. And politicians who will go on record today saying that they feel there was a cover-up. Now, let's get to the rumors, right? It's correct. Just like the ongoing arguments about the release of the Mueller report, the FBI's conclusion on the Clinton emails left a lot of people feeling like this is not – this is the uh, this is the edited version, the redacted version. I want the director's cut. I want the theatrical production. Tell me what actually happened because for supporters of the FBI's conclusions – Again, typically these would be supporters of the Clinton campaign. This was all PR sound and fake news fury, smoke with no fire, mirrors with no reflection, a manufactured crisis that accomplished exactly what it was created to do, to remove Clinton and therefore the Democratic Party from the election game. Yeah, but of course for for the people who are opponents of Hillary, um, sometimes generally supporters of the Trump campaign in 2016 – People thought that this story was itself swept under the rug after she lost the election. Like perhaps something else should have happened. We, You may remember chants from rallies that you would see on television of lock her up. Oh, that's right. Yeah. It was because some people truly believed that there was such a mishandling of this stuff that it was criminal. Um, you know, 
whether they believe that because some pundit was talking about it or because, you know, some uh, news story came out that was read incorrectly, who knows, but people certainly felt that way. But they were, and that's because they thought there was even more to the story than what was being represented by the FBI's conclusions within their reports. They thought that maybe it was a bigger cover up, cover up of some bigger thing of perhaps further corruption than just using an email server. Perhaps there was something deeper, as in a deep state within the, U- the U.S. government that was operating outside of the control of elected officials. A shadow government. Here's where it gets crazy. First, let's define what a shadow government actually is. It's not always bad. In the world of British politics, there's the shadow cabinet. All that is is a group of people from the opposition party who form a different cabinet mirroring or, wait for it, shadowing mm. the positions of each member of the real cabinet. So there's a there's a person from the opposition side who will scrutinize the policies and actions of their counterpart in the real yeah. cabinet and they'll present alternatives. Yeah. Vote, vote for us, they say, because this is what we would have done. I get it. Like a Theresa May and then a shadow Theresa May with a mustache and like a black hat or something. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. So you've seen, you've seen it. <laughs> I've seen it. So in this case – People are talking about the other uh, the other definition of a shadow government. It's not near as neat nor as helpful as the British shadow government. In the U.S., the term shadow government refers to two or three things. The first one is absolutely legal. We yes. need it. It's the continuity of government, the pre-planned order of secession in the event of one or more deaths in the executive branch and Congress. The president dies. Who's in charge now? What's the vice president? The vice president dies. Who's in charge now? And on and on and on. Uh, and one of the one of the most interesting questions to me when I was when I was a kid uh, was a very very strange answer. You know, I asked that question a lot. Of children ask, uh, "Do you think I could be president?" And a family member, I'm not going to reveal who, and their associates said, "Well, sure, you might be president tomorrow." It depends on what happens tonight. And that's how I learned about the line of secession. Whoa, are you up there? Are you in the like no. thousands? Are you in the no. th- you must be in the thousands. No, it would have to be like millions, hundreds of millions of people would have to die. We got to change that. We need to get you higher up on that I list. Don't think, I don't know. I don't think yeah, so. I, don't I think, think so. I appreciate that, but I, I would nominate you instead. Uh, nope. So <laughs> All right, Paul. It's, Paul, yeah, yeah, it's Paul. I see him. He's nodding. He would take that on. He would take that on. So that's that's the legal one. But then there's what you mentioned earlier, Matt, the deep state. This is an entrenched, allegedly entrenched network of unelected bureaucrats. They're thought to wield the purse strings, the influence and the power needed to actually run the U.S. and therefore a lot of the world behind the scenes. So, haha, they say you've been elected for what? Four years? Yeah. You are a flicker, a, but a glimmer yeah. in the eye of some of these people. And there really are positions like that that exist within Washington and the structure. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're all working together for one big thing. Sure. But they exist and they are arguably more powerful in a way than anyone that holds any office for four years. Right. Even the president. Even in any large organization and the U.S. government is huge. Most governments are. In any large organization, we see that 
communication tends to break down and people become gatekeepers of information. They run their own fiefdoms. Yeah. You know what I mean? uh, so – the the third, just for the sake of argument, the, the third possibility is the massive amount of private influence wielded by billionaires or other governments uh, or foreign businesses that want to push their interests domestically and abroad. You know, like a, a foreign trade consortium puts in hundreds of millions of dollars to toward U.S. lobbying to get more favorable trade arrangements. Right? Let's let's kick off the tariffs on these. Uh, plush Garfield koozies, yeah, that are uh, that we're pushing. I I don't know why. I, I, look, that's not my best example, but you know what I'm talking about. I dig it. An exam, another example of this on the domestic end would be the Koch brothers, who have for decades been making inroads to push the U.S. more toward the kind of governance that they would like to see, which is alternately described as a more libertarian government and neo-feudalism. Yeah. The money. We're really – we're talking about the power. If you're talking about the entrenched deep state and then with these private influencers, we're really talking about the money. Right, right. And these things can all happen concurrently. That's the messed up part. Yeah. It gets complicated. But – Usually when you hear about a shadow government here in the states, it will come from it, – it'll often come from uh, the political right. It used to be – it used to be in times past uh, a phrase used by the far, far left and the far, far right who often agree on things and more so than perhaps the media would have you believe, right? Yeah. Uh, but – this argument always hinges on that notion of the deep state. For people who believed in this kind of shadow government, the seventh floor group was proof positive that something was wrong in the Beltway. And what the heck is the seventh floor group? Well, we'll talk about it right after a word from our sponsor. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. 
and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. So the seventh floor group, or the shadow government, and we promised that this email stuff would pay off. Yeah, in the third, the last third of the episode. <laughs> the last third but, of the episode. But a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, really, you have to remember that and know that stuff before we get here. Yes, a bit of a circuitous route, but we went the most direct way possible. So we mentioned that the FBI investigation, both of them found what they saw as no evidence of, of crime, right? Sure. And a lot of people really took that on the chin because they were certain that this would be hard evidence smoking gun of a crime. However, they did find some stuff because they dug deep. In October of 2016, the FBI released four sets of documents, including notes and interview summaries. And in this summary, in the fourth part of the release, they found a revelation. Okay, so just to set this up so you understand what it is, it, through the FBI's vault, the vault, uh, that's where you can find these things. However, they've been removed. These these specific ones relating to the Hillary Clinton campaign have mm -hmm. been removed from the vault, the FBI's website. But if you go to the archive.org Wayback Machine mm -hmm. and you put in the URL, you can find this. It's difficult to find. There are a couple places you can get to it, but it's called Hillary R. Clinton Part 4 of 6. That's what it's called. You can find it. 
And essentially these are just, as Ben said, uh, summations of interviews that they, that they had with people, just individuals regarding the Hillary Clinton email campaign scandal or whatever it was, mm-hmm. talking about the private servers, what they knew, when they knew it, and all of that. And inside here, you find one specific or there are several specific things, but in one of these, one of the documents came from an interview with an unidentified person who suggested that the FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act requests related to the Cl- uh, to Clinton, anything related to Clinton, mm-hmm. went through a group that was some kind, sometimes referred to at least internally as the shadow government. As literally the shadow government. So, you know, first of all, we have to say maybe this was – maybe that's kind of an inside joke, right? Maybe – Sure. But but let's keep listening in here because according to this anonymous person, quote, there was a powerful group of very high-ranking state – that's State Department – officials that some referred to as the seventh floor group or the shadow government met every Wednesday afternoon to discuss the Freedom of Information Act process with regards to Clinton. We're talking congressional records and everything related to Clinton and uh, Freedom of Information Act and congressional inquiries. So this group, literally, they were the gatekeepers for everything Clinton-related. And they were a they were a powerful filter, right? Yes. So this, oddly enough, this sounds pretty crazy. Oddly enough, this was not a primary focus of mainstream media coverage. It did receive mention across the board. And those opposed to the Clinton campaign quickly took this and ran with it. I mean, you can't you can't blame those people because if you if you object to a politician or a group, what a what a gift <laughs> to have this to have somebody in there foolish enough to call themselves the shadow government. My very own State Department shadow government. That's like like I I don't care who you are in politics or who you wish to be. That's up there with opening a golf club called Illuminati only. <laughs> you know what I mean? Even if you say it's a joke. No, not everyone is going to be on board. So here's what we know. According to the FBI summary, and again, these are not actual transcripts, the group argued for a Clinton document release to be conducted all at once for what they called coordination purposes instead of on a rolling basis. And that would normally be the case. That, again, to your point, Matt, sounds like more procedural Mm -hmm. than, than a super big deal. A spokesperson for the State Department said, we categorically deny this claim, these related claims. There's a big one coming up. Uh, and they said these allegations are inaccurate. They don't align with the facts. To be clear, the State Department did upgrade the document at the request of the FBI when we, we released it. And he's speaking of a specific document we'll get to, but let's look at the players. So the seventh floor group was believed to meet on Wednesdays on the seventh floor, right, of their building. And the meetings were attended by some real internal power players under Secretary of State Patrick Kennedy, uh, Secretary of State at that point, John Kerry, Deputy Chief of Staff Jennifer Stout, Deputy Secretary of State for Management and Resources, Assistant Secretary Julia Frifield, and unnamed members of the Office of the Legal Advisor. Notice, wow. notice how the lawyers got away. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And just uh, it's a bunch of attorneys. <clears throat> it's fine. Yeah, which you know, if we were going to be wildly speculative, can't you can't you easily imagine someone saying, "I'll tell you about the seventh floor, but I want full immunity." You know what I mean? Yeah, 
Yeah, I can actually see that very much so. Well, is it a big deal? What, what What's the big deal here? The big deal here is apparently that the shadow government or the seventh floor group asked the FBI to declassify some emails so they wouldn't be thought of as security leaks and the smoking gun for, for people who believe that this was sinister uh, was the alleged action of Undersecretary of State Patrick Kennedy. According to the claims in the interview, he contacted the FBI to ask for the change in classification in exchange for a quid pro quo. Isn't that crazy? An old quid pro quo, Clarice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, this, this guy is important. He's also a Kennedy. Do we know if he's a Kennedy Kennedy? Patrick Kennedy. I honestly don't know. Who cares? <laughs> Check this out. So if you he, go, he probably to, cares. He, pro- he probably cares. <laughs> okay, so on page four of that FBI vault document that you can find on the uh, web.archive.org, uh, it says that there was this big meeting they're talking about with the State Department. With they called it an all agency meeting, and. Uh, this person, Patrick Kennedy, that we're speaking about, he presided over the meeting and during the conversation, one of the people specifically asked whether any member of the emails in question were classified, making eye contact with redacted. Kennedy remarked, well, we'll see. And this is uh, apparently while he was making, again, making eye contact with somebody as in like, a, hey, maybe we'll find out what's going on. And then uh, he went on to discuss essentially a quid pro quo about perhaps putting FBI agents in countries where FBI agents are generally not allowed to be. Like maybe if you can change the classification, we'll do something for you, something beyond what anyone would imagine it would be possible. The scratch of my back, uh, scratch of your back. Uh. And yeah, we'll get, we'll get FBI agents in this country where they're not supposed to be. That's a huge deal. Yeah, yeah. So – the FBI, the FBI said, "Okay, what ha- happened was <laughs> yeah, that yeah. you know what had happened was that the FBI determined uh, that there was an email. Senior State Department official requested the FBI to quote re-review this and let, look at it again. Just make sure that you know do your job, but do yeah. it again. Is it classified? Are you sure?" <laughs> yeah, but you'd have to look at it again to be sure, right? <laughs> That's basically what went down. And then they say that an FBI official who was not part of the later Clinton investigation told the State Department, the guy at the State Department, uh, well, you know, now that you mention it, uh, I guess I could look at it again. Um, you know, it would really help me look at it if uh, – if if we could maybe also address just while I've got you on the line here, yeah, yeah. while I got you on the line here, Pat, uh, if we could also address our that request they keep putting in for space for additional FBI employees assigned abroad because you know I've sent you several emails and tried to call multiple times and now you answer the phone. Well, you know what? I think maybe we can take care of it if uh, some of those emails, you know. <clears throat> Ended up being unclassified, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that sounds like a pretty mm-hmm. good deal to me. Mm-hmm. Sort of a quid pro quo. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm hanging up. No, no, you hang up. You <laughs> oh, okay, hang up okay, first. I'll, I'll hang up first. Are you still there? 
Are you still there? You oh, said you were going to hang up. <laughs> that's how they. That's how they had this conversation. Surely. <laughs> oh man. And they were both recording the whole time. And they were both recording the whole time. We're being a little bit glib, but you can see it's it's somewhat. <sighs> the FBI is making valid distinctions, right? Yes. But of course, people would deny this kind of one hand washes the other sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So. Following this call, the FBI official, who's now retired, got with a senior FBI executive who was responsible for determining classification, and they decided that it was, in fact, classified secret the way it was supposed to be. So FBI guy goes back to the State Department contact he has, and he says, look, it's classified. We looked at it twice, and it's supposed to stay secret, and we can't change it. And it wasn't changed. It remains classified today. The FBI concludes, and you can see this on their own website, although there was never a quid pro quo, these allegations were nonetheless referred to the appropriate officials for review. So they said, look, we know nothing went down, but just to keep our nose clean, we asked some other people to look at it because with the FBI, we're apolitical. We do our job. They do their job. Yeah, and to be fair – there was no quid pro quo in this instance of these you know exchanges that we that became public being very careful with that Matt I admire you right yeah. but no but come on that's that's all we've proven right or there, at least that's all the FBI says right there are other alleged activities other allegations this same group the seventh floor group or quote unquote shadow government has been accused of censoring official reports of interfering with special investigations of providing diplomatic security or protection uh, for certain individuals uh, shielding them from criminal charges and a lot of this, a lot of that stuff, once you get into the providing protection and diplomatic security and stuff for controversial people, often those are going to come from biased sources. Correct. You know? uh, see the Washington Examiner, Examiner, if you wish. You can find uh, something on that. And if you search for Hillary's officials cut criticisms out of State Department reports, you will find it and you can read all about it. You can also, while you're reading those reports, you can go back to what we have kept going back to, which is the FBI confirming at least, maybe not saying that they believe this exists, but confirming that they spoke with people who did think it exists. Who casually mentioned that it's the seventh floor group. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's the shadow government. (laughs) It's fine. It's fine. Why? Is he he Irish now? I don't know what happened. That's (laughs) that's what they're talking about. So this is is not quite where it ends, but we do have some conclusions. First, Guccifer. Are you you speaking directly to Guccifer? Guccifer. Maybe, maybe. If you tune into the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. According to the New York Times, the hacker who used this name, Guccifer, Coined the, coined the moniker to combine the style of Gucci and the light of Lucifer. He turned out to be a guy named Marcel Lehal Lazar, a 43-year-old former taxi driver. He was at the time unemployed. He did not have expertise in computers. He didn't have any fancy equipment or tech. He just had an old Samsung cell phone and an NEC desktop. And all the skills he used in hacking, according to the official reports, he picked up on the web. So he was not, as far as we know, some high-level secret state actor. Yeah, yeah. 
according to the official sources. Well, he's, he's not a botnet king or whatever. Um, but most of the emails providing the impetus for that second investigation turned out to be duplicates of stuff they found the first time around. So in that second investigation, there wasn't apparently that much new stuff. And that lends a little bit of credence to that October surprise theory. Because again, the timing, you couldn't have planned it better, right? Uh, but the group appears to have been disbanded by Donald Trump's administration, this infamous seventh floor shadow government group. On February 17, 2017, CBS reported that much of the seventh floor staff who work for the Deputy Secretary of State for Management and Resources, these titles, man, mm-hmm. And the counselor offices were told today that their services were no longer needed. So if you can read it in other articles of the time where the headline is something like Rex Tillerson uh, kicks out seventh floor group or fires a bunch of diplomats. And the State Department did encounter a purge at that time. Yeah, but who knows if they're the the seventh floor group, right? Mm. Or were maybe the people just met up on the seventh floor. Maybe they lived on the fourth floor. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. It's weird because some of us listening are convinced there's much more to the story. Some of us listening are convinced it's um, it's it's just media theater solely meant to discredit someone, right? Mm. It, it was a very divisive issue then and to a degree it's still a divisive issue today. But oddly enough, several of the original media reports have been deleted. The FBI vault files literally don't exist unless you go to the Wayback Machine. Right. But uh, not to be too much of a devil's advocate, but couldn't the FBI clean out the Wayback Machine if they wanted to? Maybe. I don't know if they have those powers. The NSA could do it. Probably. Uh, Guccifer could do it. (laughs) Uh, The Wikipedia page was also scrubbed. If you go into the talk – there's a really interesting thing about Wikipedia, uh, which is maybe not so much the articles themselves, but if you look at Wikipedia, you're going to see two tabs. You'll see a tab at the top left with the article and a tab just to the right of that called talk, right? And talk is where the editors of Wikipedia and the contributors of Wikipedia argue about whether or not something should be an article or something should be included in that article. Wikipedia is – a world at war because numerous, numerous debates, uh, uh, geopolitical sandwiches, uh, <laughs> you know, tragedies, the, all, all sorts of things are currently being furiously edited by one person or another with differing views. In the case of the Wikipedia page, from what we found, the reason given for its deletion was that there were not multiple primary sources. Mm. So they said, all right, you need, you need more than one source yeah. for this to even be entertained as the truth. Uh, but you can still find it in Matt Frederick's trusty Wayback Machine. That's right. I think that's a great T-shirt idea, by the way. It's not mine. It's archive.org. <laughs> uh, that's true. That's true. Uh, so the FBI does appear to confirm the existence of this group while not confirming that they cooperated with them. There is a re- <laughs> There was a real shadow government or at least a real group referred to as the shadow government and they apparently no longer work for the State Department. But it leads us to the end of today's episode and a question, a disturbing question. 
even if this wasn't that big of a deal, there's still a group of people that were not elected officials that were hang hanging out in, you know, someplace making decisions about what you and I and everyone listening as the public get to hear or know about an elected official. How many other groups like that exist that are gatekeepers of information for the public that are maybe making bigger decisions even than that about geopolitics, about foods we eat, about uh, the types of polyester mixed clothing we get to wear? How much your dollar is worth. Ooh, that's a big one. That's yeah. more important than the type of clothing we get to wear. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> These all seem pretty important, right? Thank you so much for checking out this episode. Uh, we we know this would be a little divisive for people who have really dug deep into this. Uh, we did give a, a high-level look because we wanted to provide enough of a view of the forest for us to understand what the seventh floor group is. Yeah. Why it matters, and again, why would you, why would you call yourself the shadow government? Just even for funsies, I don't know. That seems that seems a little dangerous. I mean, I guess we could do it, but everybody would probably know that we're not we're not making moves, yeah. uh, as representatives of Uncle Sam or a foreign power. Exactly, and uh, I would say if you want to keep going down this rabbit hole, a, a great and exciting, fun thing to do is to go to the Wikipedia page for the Hillary Clinton email controversy and then go all the way down to the bottom and just, you know, after looking at the talk thing and all the other stuff, go all the way down the bottom and just start clicking through sources down there because it's crazy just the amount of media that was generated through this scandal, the amount of sourcing that exists on that one wiki page. Um, it's an intense slog. Good luck to you. Uh, enjoy yourself. Make sure you got a drink. And let us know what other examples of shadow governments you have found, not just here in the U.S., but in other countries or in other groups of countries, right? We want to hear those stories that you think your fellow listeners would enjoy about what goes on behind the curtain. You can tell us about this on Instagram. You can tell us about this on Facebook. You can tell us about this on Twitter. Uh, we highly recommend you check out our favorite part of the show, your fellow listeners on our Facebook page. Here's where it gets crazy. But wait, someone says, I hate social media. Then call us. We are 1-833-STDWYTK. Leave us a message. You'll have three minutes. Um, if you need more time, call back. That's fine. You'll be greeted with a chilling uh, message from Mr. Ben Bolin uh, when, you, when you call in. You just wait for the beep or you can turn back now. It's really great. Okay. Uh, if you do leave a message, it might get on the air. Please, please, please give us just your, your ideas, your thoughts on shadow government, your personal stories about shadow people, whatever you've got, just send it our way. Uh, we'd love to hear it. I'm actually taking, I've got uh, 24 more new, like brand new messages from the last week and a half, Ben, that I'm going through right now. Oh, uh, yeah. It's a lot. It's really good, too. All right. Um, do that. If you don't want to do that, there's one last thing you can do if you want to reach us. You can send us a good old-fashioned email. We are conspiracy at HowStuffWorks.com.
Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first listen. listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. Medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.